Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Well, thank you for joining us here for another edition of Then and Now podcast, where we study the Bible and history from a full preterist perspective. Last time, we looked at what happened during the siege of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. This time, we will look at the aftermath of the war from A.D. 70 down to A.D. 73, when Masada fell. With all of its demolitions of Jerusalem and its mop-up operations throughout Judea, I want to spend some significant time dealing with the fall of Masada, including how its wall was breached and how its Jewish defenders died in a massive suicide pact. Before we get into that study, however, let's pray. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only one who is supremely and perfectly good in all your holy ways, your loving kindness is indeed everlasting. It conquers all our fear and shame and emboldens us to serve you all of our days. As we study this history of the complete shattering of the Jewish people in AD 70, may we, like the prophet Daniel of old, be awestruck by your fearful works in history as you called out from among all the nations a new people to be your own peculiar possession. Thanks so much for choosing us to be your servants. Use us to proclaim the excellencies of your holy name. It is in the merciful and gracious name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to deal with the time now after the fall of Jerusalem in those few short years until Masada fell. In May of 70 A.D., just before the siege, evidently, Eliezer ben Ananias had escaped to Masada, at least according to Yosipon and Hegesippus. However, in Josephus' account, he says that it was another Eliezer, Ben-Yer, who was a relative of Judas the Galilean, who had fled to Masada in September of 66, after Eliezer ben Ananias had captured and killed Menachem in Jerusalem. But Yosipon and Hegesippus say that Eliezer ben Ananias fled from Jerusalem to Masada just before the siege began, and that it was he who led the zealot defense of Masada after Jerusalem fell. When Jerusalem fell in AD 70, there were more refugees who fled to Masada to join forces with them. Among those refugees were some Essenes. Masada held out for almost three years against the Romans, but in May of 73, just three years after this, the Romans were able to get their battering ram on top of the ramp that they had built at Masada and were able to break through the walls. In October here of 70 AD, after the temple had fallen, we notice that not one stone was left upon another of the temple, which was not thrown down. And this was fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 24, where he said that very thing would happen within that generation. Not one stone of the temple would be left upon another. 
After Jerusalem fell, the Roman soldiers dismantled the temple stone by stone in order to get the gold and silver out from between the cracks where it had melted during the fire of the temple. Thus, those Roman soldiers unintentionally fulfilled Jesus' prophecy that not one stone of the temple building would be left standing upon another. Note that Jesus was referring only to the temple building itself, not to the outer perimeter walls of the temple platform. Most futurists miss that point. They think that the surviving western wall, which is the Wailing Wall, was a part of the temple building, and therefore the prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 24 has not been fulfilled yet. But that is not the case at all. The Wailing Wall was merely the outer wall of the temple platform and was not one of the walls of the temple building itself. That means that the prophecy of Jesus has been totally and literally fulfilled. Here are the statements of Josephus about this. Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be objects of their fury, for they would have not spared any had there remained any other such work to be done, Caesar gave orders that they now should demolish the entire city and temple but should leave as many of the towers standing as were of the greatest eminency, that is, Phasaelus and Hippicus and Mariam, and so much of the wall as enclosed the city on the west side. This wall was spared in order to afford a camp for such as were to lie in garrison, as were the towers also spared in order to demonstrate to posterity what kind of city it was and how well fortified which the Roman valor had subdued. But for all the rest of the wall, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was not left anything to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. Josephus goes on to say, Where is this city that was believed to have God himself inhabiting therein? It is now demolished to the very foundations. And he says, the gold and the silver, a great deal of which the Romans dug up. But the greatest part was discovered by those who were captives, and so they carried away the gold and the silver and the rest of that most precious furniture which the Jews had and which the owners had treasured up underground against the uncertain fortunes of war. And then Josephus says, to conclude, when he entirely demolished the rest of the city and overthrew its walls, he left these towers as a monument of his good fortune, which had proved his auxiliaries and enabled him to take what could not otherwise have been taken by him. And so here we see in these four quotes the fact that the city was demolished and the temple was completely toppled stone by stone, leaving nothing left of the temple there. Every stone was dismantled, demolished to the very foundations, Josephus says. The Romans dug it up stone by stone in order to get the gold and silver out of the cracks. Well, Whiston notes about this on Wars, Book 7, Section 31. He says, 
This Terentius Rufus, as Raylan Part observes here, is the same person whom the Talmudists call Turnus Rufus, of whom they relate that he plowed up Zion as a field, and made Jerusalem become as heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest, which was long before foretold by the prophet Micah, chapter 3, verse 12, and quoted from him in the prophecies of Jeremiah, chapter 26, verse 18. Adam Clark also has some comments on Matthew chapter 24, verse 2, about not one stone left upon another. He says, Maimonides, a Jewish rabbi in Tractate Ta'anit, says that the very foundations of the temple were digged up according to the Roman custom. His words are these, On that ninth day of the month of, fatal for vengeance, the wicked Turnus Rufus of the children of Edom, plowed up the temple and the places round about it, that the saying might be fulfilled, Zion shall be plowed as a field. This Turnus, or rather Terentius Rufus, was left general of the army by Titus, with commission, as the Jews suppose, to destroy the city and the temple, as Josephus observes. Also, Barnes notes on Matthew chapter 24, verse 2, says, Maimonides, a Jewish writer, has also recorded that Terentius Rufus, an officer in the army of Titus, with a plowshare tore up the foundations of the temple, that the prophecy might be fulfilled, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Micah 3, verse 12. Well, one of the Roman historians, and I was unable to find the source for this quote, but one of the Roman historians described the war in Judea as the most desperate in which the empire had ever engaged. Well, after the war, Josephus went to Rome with Titus and was adopted into the Flavian family and commissioned to write both the history of the wars, which he finished in A.D. 78, and also the Antiquities, which was finished in A.D. 93. Agrippa II and his sister Bernice also went to Rome with Titus after the war was over, Josephus supposedly was good friends with Agrippa in Rome after the war and obtained a lot of information about the war from Agrippa, which he added into his wars and antiquities. Well, during the war and afterwards, Titus consorted with Bernice, who was a sister of Agrippa II. Both during the military campaign in Palestine and afterwards in Rome, Titus had an ongoing affair with Bernice, who was Jewish. This was an outrage to the citizens of Rome, who had developed an intense hatred for the Jewish people by this time. Titus was forced to back away from that relationship. The Jews did not like it any more than the Romans did. This illicit relationship may be one more of the historical realities symbolized by the harlot-beast relationship in the book of Revelation. Josephus does not mention this scandal in his works, probably because of his friendship with Agrippa and Bernice in Rome after the war, in order to protect his benefactors, the Flavian family, from unnecessary embarrassment and to minimize the bitterness of the Jews. But Roman historians mention it, as do modern historians. 
It is also noteworthy that on Roman coinage minted by Vespasian and Titus after the war, the Jewish nation was symbolized by a woman taken captive by a Roman soldier, with the inscription, Judea Captive, on the coins. Well, Titus took the temple vessels back with him to Rome, as Josephus tells us in Book 7, Section 5. Many of the young, healthy captives were taken to Rome and used in the triumph, including John of Giscala and Simon Ben-Giora. The children were sold as slaves. The old and infirm were killed. Seven hundred were reserved by Titus for his triumph in Rome, including both John of Giscala and Simon Ben-Giora. The rest of the able-bodied were sent to the mines, the rock quarries, galley ships, and to various Roman cities to be used in their theaters and arenas for amusement and to fight with wild animals. Earlier in the war, in AD 67, Nero had ordered Vespasian to send 6,000 of the captives to Corinth to work on that four-mile Isthmian Canal that they were trying to dig through solid rock, 300 feet thick at its highest point, which would have been a canal between the Adriatic and the Aegean Seas. Unfortunately, uh, very little depth was achieved by those Jewish captives since it was solid rock that they were trying to dig through. It was not until the use of dynamite after 1881 that they were able to finish the canal. Here is what Josephus had to say about what happened to those captured alive by the Romans. And as for the rest of the multitude that were above 17 years old, he put them into bonds and sent them to the Egyptian mines. Titus also sent a great number into the provinces as a present to them, that they might be destroyed upon their theaters, by the sword, and by the wild beast. But those that were under 17 years of age were sold for slaves. Whiston has a note about this. He says, See the several predictions that the Jews, if they became obstinate in their idolatry and wickedness, should be sent again or sold into Egypt for their punishment. And, of course, Deuteronomy 28 and Jeremiah 44 and Hosea, as well as Second Esdras and some of the authentic records uh, that are part of Rome, document all this and predict it. Also, Josephus says in Book 7, Sections 24 and 38, he says, And here a great number of captives were destroyed, some being thrown to wild beasts, and others in multitudes forced to kill one another, as if they were enemies, in the gladiatorial contest. For the number of those that were now slain in fighting with the beast, and were burnt, and fought with one another, exceeded 2,500. Yet did all this seem to the Romans when they were thus destroying 10,000 several ways to be a punishment beneath their deserts? Then Josephus says in Wars Book 2, Now the people of Caesarea had slain the Jews that were among them on that very same day and hour when the soldiers were slain, which one would think must have come to pass by the direction of providence, insomuch that in one hour's time above 20,000 Jews were killed, and all Caesarea was emptied of its Jewish inhabitants. For Florus caught such as ran away, and sent them in bonds to the galley ships, as oarsmen for those Roman ships. Josephus also says in... um, 
Wars, Book 1, Section 28, nor shall I omit to mention the misfortunes of the deserters, nor the punishments inflicted on the captives, as also how the temple was burnt against the consent of Caesar, and how many sacred things that had been laid up in the temple were snatched out of the fire, the destruction also of the entire city, with the signs and wonders that went before it, and the taking of the tyrants captive, and the multitude of those that were made slaves, and into what different misfortunes they were every one distributed. Out of the young men, Vespasian chose six thousand of the strongest, and sent them to Nero to dig through the isthmus, and sold the remainder for slaves, being thirty thousand and four hundred, besides such as he made a present of to Agrippa. Josephus also says, The most courageous, therefore, of those men that went out, prevented the enemy, and got away, and fled for it. But for those men that were caught within, they were slain, to the number of 1,700, as were the women and children made slaves. Some of them have been put on the rack, and tortured with fire and whippings, and so died. Some have been half devoured by wild beasts, and yet have been reserved alive to be devoured by them a second time, in order to afford laughter and sport to our enemies. Well, that's a pretty sad tale about what happened to the Jewish people after they were defeated in 70 AD. They were very miserably treated by the Romans. Well, in 70 AD, of course, uh, Yohanan ben Zakkai was a allowed by Titus to build a school in Yavne, where he could continue the study of the Jewish scriptures and teach his students about the law. But they did far more than just build a school there. They secretly reconstituted the Beit Din, or Sanhedrin Council, ostensibly only for deciding matters related to Jewish customs and culture and religion, but also known for its far-reaching influence toward fostering and supporting the second Bar Kokhba revolt 62 years later. It was this very group of Pharisaic rabbis, more than any others, who reshaped and transformed biblical Judaism into rabbinic or Talmudic Judaism. We will have a lot more to say about this when we get into the history of that first generation after the destruction of Jerusalem in our studies in the fall after we return from the summer break. Well, in October here of 70 AD, after the temple had fallen and the city of Jerusalem was dismantled, we need to note here that true Christians were nowhere to be found. One of the things we notice here, not only during the war, but even afterwards, is that true Christians totally disappeared from the historical narrative. Right after the war broke out in the summer of AD 66, we hear nothing more about Christians. Neither Josephus, Tacitus, Yosipon, or Hegesippus mention any activities of any Christians during the war. There were no more New Testament books written, no more missionary journeys, and no participation in the Zealot war effort. Josephus mentioned Essenes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Hellenistic Jews, proselytes, Babylonian and Persian Jews, 
Idumeans, Galileans, Samaritans, and all other Jews from all over the Roman Empire coming back to Judea to help fight the war. But there is no mention of any Christians whatsoever. There is a strange absence of Christians at this time. Jewish historians like Greats do not mention the presence and activities of Christians again until a couple of decades after the war. And even then, it is not the kind of Christians that we saw before the war. The Christians that the rabbis in Yavne encountered and interacted with in their synagogues after the war, according to Greats, were only half Judean and half Christian. This sounds more like the Ebionites and Nazarene Unitarian Judaizers who would have felt comfortable congregating in the synagogues and not at all the kind of true Christians that we saw before the war. Right after the war, for some reason, and I believe it's the rapture, obviously, there were not many Christians of any kind still around for anyone to notice, almost two decades after 70 A.D. We will also deal with this a lot more when we get into the history of the first generation after the destruction of Jerusalem, when we resume those studies in the fall. Well, here after Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, there was three fortresses that remained in the hands of the zealots, Herodium, Machaerus, and Masada. Over the course of the next three years, the Romans finally eliminated those isolated pockets of resistance. Lucilius Bassus was sent as the Roman military commander over Judea in order to take those three fortresses. He took control of the troops from Surialis Vitellius and then went to Herodium. It was the first of the three fortresses to fall. Its defenders quickly capitulated with little resistance. But Machaerus was better situated and supplied, and thus put up quite a bit more resistance. Machaerus was originally fortified by Alexander Janus in about 90 B.C. He ruled as king of the Jews from 103 B.C. to 76 B.C. It was subsequently destroyed by Pompey's general Gabinius in 57 B.C., after Alexander Janus had attacked Aristobulus. Herod the Great rebuilt it in 30 B.C. as a strategic outpost on his southeastern frontier close to Arabia. After Herod died, it was given to his son Herod Antipas, who ruled from 4 B.C. until A.D. 39. This is where Antipas imprisoned John the Baptist and beheaded him at the request of his wife Herodias's daughter Salome, as we learn in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, as well as in the Antiquities of Josephus, book 18, sections 116 through 119. After easily taking Herodium, the Roman general Bassus took his army to Machaerus and built a ramp on the east side of the fortress from which he could more easily batter its walls and storm the fortress. The Jews in the upper city fortress of Machaerus 
soon surrendered when one of their young defenders was captured and threatened with crucifixion unless they would surrender. The defenders of the upper city capitulated, but those within the lower city tried to escape instead. Some were able to get away from the city quickly enough to avoid capture, but 1,700 of the remaining men were killed, while their women and children were sold as slaves. Well, Josephus tells us that Judas ben Jairus, or Judas the son of Year, and some others had escaped from Jerusalem during the siege through some of the underground tunnels and fled to the forest along the Jordan River. They were joined by the refugees from Machaerus, who fled the lower city when the upper fortress surrendered to Bassus. After Machaerus was captured and dismantled, the Roman general Bassus went to the Jordan Valley to eliminate those refugees who had fled there and who were hiding there in the forest of the Jordan River. The Roman scouts found where they were hiding, and Bassus brought his cavalry to surround it. Then the Romans cleared out the trees around the site so that no easy escape was possible. This forced the Jews to attack the Romans out in the open. Only twelve Roman soldiers were killed and a few more wounded, while all three thousand of the Jews were killed. Well, Vespasian ordered Lucilius Bassus, the military commander of Judea, and Liberius Maximus, the new procurator, to sell all the land in Judea. He gave the city of Emmaus to 800 of his soldiers for them to inhabit after he honorably dismissed them from their military service. He also imposed a two drachma tax on every Jew, which is the same amount they formerly paid every year to the temple in Jerusalem. Lucilius Bassus died not long after he captured Machaerus and was replaced by General Flavius Silva, who then took charge of the assault on Masada. Well, some have asked me um, about the passage in Ezekiel 39, verse 12, where it talks about burying all the dead carcasses and that it took them about seven months to finish burying all the dead carcasses that they found scattered over the whole land of Israel. Although Josephus doesn't tell us how long it took to bury all the dead from the Jewish war, the figure given here of seven months in Ezekiel sounds reasonable uh, because there was a lot of dead bodies scattered all over Galilee and Samaria and Judea. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 39 verses 12 through 16, for seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Even all the people of the land will bury them and it will be to their renown on the day that I glorify myself, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, burying those who were passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground, in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months they will make a search. As those who pass through the land pass through, and anyone sees a man's bone, then he will set up a marker by it, until the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman-Gog. And even the name of the city will be Hamona, so they will cleanse the land. 
the Roman armies probably spent at least that much time burying all the dead. They probably used their Jewish captives to do all the grave digging. We do not know for sure whether the seven months were counted from the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 or after Herodium, Machaerus, and Masada were taken in AD 73. Vespasian and Titus put two Roman generals, Bassus and Silva, in charge of all that cleanup work. Bassus took Herodium and Machaerus, then died, and Silva then took over and captured Masada. There could be some information in the Roman military archives which could probably nail all this down, and the dates for it might be worth doing some internet searches for that information if you're interested in it. Ezekiel 39, verse 17 and following, of course, sure sounds like Jesus' statements in Matthew 24 about the Jews being a dead carcass about to be picked clean by the Roman vultures. The same figure is used in Revelation 19, verses 17 and following, and other places. Well, Judea was not the only place that had some rebels. Some of the Sicarii fled to Alexandria and tried to stir up a rebellion there. But the Jewish leaders in Alexandria took swift action against them and rounded up 600 of them and put them to death. None of them were willing to desist from their rebellion or swear allegiance to Caesar, not even their wives and children. Also, uh, Lupus, the Roman governor of Alexandria, sent a report to Caesar Vespasian about this Sicari uprising in Alexandria, and as a result, Vespasian then ordered Lupus to shut down the temple of Onias at Heliopolis, which was built in 170 B.C. After Lupus died, his successor, Paulinus, robbed the temple of all its treasures and prohibited the Jews from worshiping there, as well as obstructed all the entrances to it so that they could not get into it and worship there or perform any sacrifices or offerings. Well, there were other rebels who fled to Cyrene in Libya, where they tried to stir up some trouble also. One of them, named Jonathan, gathered a band of followers about himself and led them into the desert, promising that he would perform miracles for them. The rulers of Cyrene reported this to the Roman governor Catullus, who immediately sent horsemen and footmen out into the desert to round them up. When Jonathan was captured, he falsely claimed that the wealthy Jews of Cyrene had supported his efforts. Catullus then, who was just looking for a way to get rid of the Jewish people and seize their property, killed 3,000 of the leading Jews in Cyrene and seized their property. Jonathan then accused Josephus and some of the leading Jews of Alexandria of supporting his rebellion. This got the attention of Vespasian, who then fully investigated it and found out that it was a false accusation. Jonathan was then tortured and burned alive. While Catullus was reprimanded by Vespasian, soon afterwards, however, Catullus died of a severe intestinal disease, which the Jews considered to be his just punishment for killing their fellow countrymen in Cyrene. 
Now I want to talk about the capture of Masada. General Silva supposedly took the 10th Legion to Masada. He cleared out any remaining Jewish refugees that were in the area and then surrounded Masada with his army encampments. Masada was now totally cut off from the outside world. They had plenty of food and water stored up on top of the mountain, but they had no hope of victory or escape. They were outmanned ten to one. Well, several scholars who have studied Josephus and Yosipon and Hegesippus and other historical sources have wondered whether the Eliezer, who was the leader at Masada, was, in fact, Eliezer ben Yer, like Josephus suggests, or whether he was Eliezer ben Ananias, as Hegesippus and Yosipon have suggested. Well, if he was Eliezer ben Ananias, then then I believe that pretty much cinches the deal for Eliezer being the man of lawlessness, and I'll explain why. In Second Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 12, Apostle Paul predicted that there would be a man of lawlessness in the final days of that generation, and he gives a very good description of that man of lawlessness, and we'll look at some of that. And I think this Eliezer ben Ananias is the guy who fits the description. Gary DeMar, Ken Gentry, and David Chilton, and others believe that the man of sin was Nero. On the other hand, John Bray, whose little booklet, The Man of Sin, is well worth your study, and his book on Matthew 24, suggests that John of Giscala was the man of lawlessness. Well, like Bray, I too see the man of sin as a Jewish zealot leader, but I don't see it as John of Giscala. And the reason I don't subscribe to the Neronian theory that Nero was the man of sin is because of the explicit Jewish character with which Paul describes the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul stated that the man of sin would set himself up in the temple as if he was God. Nero never set foot in Judea, much less in Jerusalem's temple nor was his image ever set up in the temple. So we need another candidate who might have set himself up in the temple as if he was God. It is also worth mentioning that Paul identifies the man of sin as a single individual, in contrast with the apostle John, who referred to many antichrist in 1 John chapter 2, chapter 4, and in 2 John 7. Furthermore, John describes these antichrists as having formerly been a part of the church before they went out from us. They were deceivers and false apostles. The man of sin cannot be the same as these antichrists since there is no indication that the man of sin was ever a part of the church. Paul here in 2 Thessalonians 2 provides over a dozen different characteristics by which to identify the man of sin, several of which clearly paint him as a Jewish figure in close connection with the temple or priesthood, such as the following characteristics that are mentioned here in 2 Thessalonians 2, the first of which is that he would sit in the temple of God. 
He would break the law completely. He would oppose everyone else. He would exalt himself above God and the law. He would delude his followers with false signs and wonders. That sounds like a zealot leader right there. He would engage in utter wickedness. He would end up being slain and brought to an end by the breath of Christ's mouth at the parousia. Now, we're going to look at several of those, and I think we're going to see how they were literally uh, and completely fulfilled by Eliezer ben Ananias. These qualifications that we just looked at here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 limit the field of possible Jewish candidates to the following individuals. Ananias II, Eliezer ben Ananias, Menachem ben Judas, and John of Giscala. While there are a few fingers pointing at Ananias, Menachem, and John, none of them fit all the qualifications as perfectly as Eliezer, the son of Ananias. When the Roman procurator Gessius Florus brought his soldiers to Jerusalem to confiscate all the gold from the temple in May of AD 66, Yosipon writes that it was a brash young man, Eliezer, who blew the shofar in Jerusalem and rallied the citizens to block the lanes of the city. Eliezer then seized control of the temple and used it as his fortress in violation of the law from that point forward. Shortly thereafter, the angelic armies were seen in the clouds over Palestine, signaling that the Son of Man had arrived to begin his judgment. A couple of months later, Eliezer illegally stopped the daily sacrifices of all Gentiles. This was also totally unprecedented, monstrous, and lawless in the extreme. Never had Gentile sacrifices and offerings been refused. At the very time God was grafting the Gentiles into his church, the zealots were breaking off all religious contact with the Gentiles. Quite a contrast. The moderate Jewish leadership and priests all reminded Eliezer that to do such a thing would be to set himself above God and the law. So we've seen lawless activities here as well as setting himself up above the law and above God. And he set himself up in the temple, took control of it, used it as his fortress in violation of the law. And he stopped the daily sacrifices for all Gentiles, which was in violation of the law. So we see already here in just the first few months of the war that Eliezer ben Ananias fits several of the descriptions, being a very lawless person who sits in the temple, broke the law completely, opposed everyone else, exalted himself above God and the law. Eliezer was the son of Ananias ben Nadibus, who was the high priest when Second Thessalonians was written, as well as four years later in AD 58, during Paul's trial in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 23. It was Ananias who ordered that Paul be struck on the mouth. After being struck, Paul predicted, God is about to strike you, and then called him a lawbreaker. As was the father a lawbreaker, so was the son, Eliezer, an even worse lawbreaker. 
Eight years later, in September of AD 66, Ananias was struck dead by the zealot leader Menachem, immediately after which Eliezer used his own soldiers to avenge his father by killing Menachem and his soldiers in the temple, again in violation of the law. Thus, Eliezer opposed every other zealot leader and exalted himself above them all. Josephus mentions repeatedly that all the zealot leaders, especially Eliezer, paid false prophets to deceive the people to fight in the rebellion and support their cause. The zealot leaders accomplished amazing feats of bravery, like the defeat of Cestius, the capture of all his war engines and weapons and supplies, plus the capture of Herod's three fortresses, Herodium, Machaerus, and Masada, with all their weaponry and supplies, which brought limited and temporary success to them against Cestius Gallus early in the war. These signs and wonders of the zealot leaders to gather up all those weapons and supplies and to defeat Cestius were what deceived the Jewish people into thinking that ultimate victory would be theirs. Josephus lamented the utter wickedness, uncleanness, and abominable conduct engaged in by all of the zealots in Jerusalem during the war, and especially which even occurred in the temple in the last few months before the siege, which is the very kind of lawless conduct referred to here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. As both Yosipon and Hegesippus indicate, Eliezer was the one who literally sat in the temple, controlling all the affairs of the temple, priesthood, and sacrifices, and used the temple as his fortress during nearly the entire war, beginning in April of AD 66 and all the way down until control of the temple was taken away from him by John of Giscala just before the siege of Titus began. John of Giscala was somehow able to overpower Eliezer and take control of the whole temple area, forcing the troops of Eliezer to merge with John's. As we noted a couple of sessions ago in our session entitled Zealot Factions, this appears to be the time when Eliezer escaped through some of the underground tunnels and fled to Masada, at least according to Yosipon in chapters 82 and 89. Eliezer's flight to Masada, here right before the siege of Titus began, explains why Josephus lost track of him after John captured the temple. Both Yosipon and Hegesippus appear to place Eliezer ben Ananias in Masada during the rest of the time after John took control of the temple until the fall of Masada in 73 A.D., Here's what Yosipon says about this. When Eliezer ben Anani, the priest, saw that Shimon's wickedness had increased within the city, and he had annihilated the righteous and the pious from the city, and there was no more hope, he dispatched a force and seized the wall of Masada. Then he went and sat there to guard it. Titus heard that a large army of Jews had assembled at Masada, and with them Eleazar ben Anani, who had been in Jerusalem. 
he had escaped from Jerusalem during the fighting and had gone to Masada. Therefore, many of the Jews gathered around him. Well, it's also possible that Eliezer took control of Masada and placed a garrison there after he killed Menachem at the beginning of the war, at least according to Hegesippus 2, verse 10. It's possible that he took control of it there at the beginning of the war and stationed a garrison there. Evidence from a pottery inscription, as we looked at a couple of sessions ago, in Nava's book, the Aramaic and Hebrew Astraka and Jar inscriptions, talks about this pottery inscription that uh, mentions another one of the sons of Ananias there, Akavia, who owned that pottery that was found on top of Masada, which supports the idea that Eliezer's family was dwelling on Masada at the time of its capture. And one of the Aramaic legal documents found in Cave 4 at Merabaat in the Judean wilderness, which was a divorce certificate, uh, document number 20 in those Merabaat documents that they found, shows that Eliezer ben Ananias was at Masada in AD 71. That's when that divorce document was dated up on top of Masada, and it was witnessed by Eliezer ben Ananias in 71 AD. So that gives us a little bit of a hint as to when Eliezer must have arrived on Masada. He was there in 71, and evidently was already in control, so that tells us a lot about the fact that he must have escaped there during the war. Well, when Titus found out that Eliezer had escaped to Masada, he sent General Silva with a large force to make sure Eliezer did not elude his grasp this time. The only thing Hegesippus says about Eliezer at this point was that he was now on Masada, leading the remaining zealots in their futile defense of this final stronghold. The final mention of Eliezer by Hegesippus was when Eliezer gave his final speech to the 960 people on Masada, the night before the Romans broke through the wall and captured the fortress. Paul stated in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 that the Lord Jesus would slay the lawless one by the breath of his mouth. In the previous chapter, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7, Paul had predicted that Christ would come in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to their persecutors. Here at the conquering of Masada, we see the breath of his mouth driving the flaming fire which destroyed their wooden wall of defense against the Romans. Here's what Josephus says about this in Wars, Book 7, Section 314 and following. This wooden wall of theirs was like a real edifice, and when the machines were applied, the blows were weakened by its yielding. When Silva saw this, he thought it best to destroy this wall by setting fire to it. So he gave order, and when it was once set on fire, its hollowness made that fire spread to a mighty flame. After this, on a sudden, the wind changed into the south as if it were done by divine providence, and blew strongly the contrary way and carried the flame and drove it against the wall, 
which was now on fire through its entire thickness. So the Romans, having now assistance from God, returned to their camp with joy and resolved to attack their enemies the very next day. But when Eliezer saw their wall burnt down by the fire and could devise no other way of escaping or room for their further courage, and setting before their eyes what the Romans would do to them, their children and their wives, if they got them into their power, he consulted about having them all slain. Now, notice how Hegesippus described this burning of the wooden wall. He said it was God who caused the breath of the south wind to turn the fire against their wooden fortifications and completely consume them. Here's what he says. Silva, diligently pursuing the task imposed upon him, destroyed the wall of Masada with the battering ram. They had constructed the interior with wood for the reason that the wall material would not readily yield to the blows of siege machines of this type. But the Romans, the manner of fighting having been changed, threw fire, which both easily stuck fast to the wood and grew strong without any delay. And so a great roar was produced by the full-grown conflagration of the blaze, which at first was driven back from parts of the fortification by the breath of the north wind, and instead burned the shelters of the Romans. Then the breath of the south wind, having arisen, turned itself back against the fortress, so that the material having been consumed, all that wooden wall opposed burned up. Then Eleazar said, O unhappy people, to what hope of this life will we reserve ourselves? Since the displeasure of God is evident, the fires have been turned round from the enemy against us, the breezes of the winds have been changed, the flames turned back, so that our reinforcements were burned down. Who will be able to live with God opposing? In this same speech at Masada, Eliezer ben Ananias referred to Jerusalem as being the great city, he says, and where now is that great city, the metropolis of the Jewish nation, which was fortified by so many walls round about, which had so many fortresses and large towers to defend it, which could hardly contain the instruments prepared for the war, and which had so many ten thousands of men to fight for it. Where now is that great city. That sounds very much like the descriptions of the destruction of Jerusalem that we find in not only Revelation, but also Jeremiah 22 verse 8 refers to the Jerusalem of his day as being like a great city. Well, Hegesippus and Yosipon also uh, repeat the same verbiage here about the great city. Notice Hegesippus says, Where is the great city of Jerusalem, where the splendid Zion, where the wonderful temple, where that second tabernacle, the shrine of sanctity, was? And then Yosipan says, Where is the great city, capital of the people, Jerusalem, 
Where is the beauty of Zion, the holy city? And so we have three witnesses here to the fact that Eliezer referred to Jerusalem as being the great city. The same phrase we find in Revelation, uh, several different places. Revelation 11, Revelation 16, 17, and 18. Thus we have seen that the words of Second Thessalonians 2 verse 8 do not fit the fate of the other Jewish leaders that we have mentioned. We know that Ananias ben Nadebus, Menachem, and Ananias II were all killed during the war. Simon ben Giora and John of Giscala both surrendered to Titus and were taken to Rome to be displayed in the triumphal parade through the streets. After being dragged through the crowd and tormented by them, Simon was finally thrown over the Tarpeian cliff in sacrifice to the Roman gods, while John of Giscala was held in chains in a Roman prison for the rest of his life. However, Second Thessalonians 2 verse 8 states that the man of sin would be slain, a word that is used 451 times in the works of Josephus describing all the slaughters and killings that occurred during the war. This same word was also used by Josephus three times in the context of the suicide killings in Masada at the end of the war. As Josephus says, So they, being not able to bear the grief they were under for what they had done any longer by slaying all their families, and esteeming it an injury to those they had slain to live even the shortest space of time after them, then they kill themselves." he says. And he says, And when these ten had without fear slain them all, they made the same rule for casting lots for themselves, that he whose lot it was should first kill the other nine, and after all should kill himself. And then he says, When the last man standing perceived that they were all slain, he set fire to the palace, and with the great force of his hands ran his sword entirely through himself and fell down dead near to his own relatives. Thus Eliezer died at Masada with 960 others in a final suicide pact, slain by his own soldiers. This very word slain that Second Thessalonians 2 verse 8 uses is found here three times in this section that we just quoted from Josephus. It was this Eliezer who was slain by his own soldiers, or by his own sword. We don't know for sure how he was slain. We just know he was slain. This zealot leader, who was the originator of the disturbance, according to Hegesippus, was probably one of the last ones to be slain. This explains why Titus sent Silva to Masada with such a large force to make sure the last remaining remnants of the rebellion were completely shattered. Titus was determined to not let Eliezer, who was the original instigator of the rebellion, escape to fight another day. While Hegesippus seems to agree with Josephus on this mass suicide pact of all 960 of them, including all the fighting men, Yosipon has a little different ending to the story. Instead of Eliezer and the fighting men killing themselves, 
they instead slew only their wives, children, and aged elders. Then at the first light of morning, the remaining fighting men rushed out of Masada, charged the Romans, and fought until every last one of them was killed by the Romans, according to Yosipon. But Hegesippus and Josephus uh, say that they all died in the suicide pact. Well, the point that we must not miss here is that Eliezer seems to be the only one who fulfilled all the characteristics of the man of sin that are mentioned in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He was the one who blew the shofar and started the war. He was the only one who sat in the temple and took the law into his own hands by stopping the Gentile sacrifices. Annas II never had control of the temple during the war, and John of Giscala only gained control of it at the very end when the siege began, at a time when holding the temple no longer mattered. Although both John of Giscala and Annas II were guilty of many lawless acts, none were so lawless as what Eliezer did by killing his own countrymen, changing the laws, breaking covenants, polluting the temple, and stopping the daily sacrifices. Eliezer far exceeded his contemporaries in lawlessness. It appears, then, that the lawless one, or man of sin, was indeed forced to be slain by his own men when his last hope of defense was destroyed by the breath of our Lord's mouth when the south wind burned their last wall of defense. Well, the fall of Masada occurred on uh, the 15th day of the month Xanthicus, which is Nisan, which is, I think, the first day or second day of Passover in the spring of the year. That Passover time is when Masada fell. Well, I thought that would be interesting for you to see how Eliezer ben Ananias fulfilled all the predictions that Paul made about the man of lawlessness, especially how the south wind turned the fire against their wall up on top of Masada and burned it completely, flaming fire by the breath of God's mouth fulfilled it very literally. I don't think we could find a much more literal fulfillment of the man of lawlessness than that. Well, that'll wrap up our chronology for the Jewish war and its aftermath. Uh, We covered only about 11 years of history here in these podcasts on Buzzsprout, but as we have seen, it was an extremely busy time for both the Christians and the Jews. Last time we mentioned Yohanan ben Zakkai, the very important Pharisaic rabbi who founded the school in Yavne after the war was over. Modern rabbinical and Talmudic Judaism can trace its origin from that very school in Yavne that was founded by Yohanan. We will have a lot more to say about the activities and significance of that school, both for Judaism and Christianity when we get back into our historical studies of the first generation after 70 A.D., which we are planning to begin, Lord willing, in the fall after we all return from the summer vacation. Since I need some time to further research that period of church history, 
and prepare some lessons on it for a preterist conference in the Seattle area in late September, we will hold off on beginning that study of the first generation after 70 until September. We will be announcing the details about that conference sometime soon. If you would like to put that conference on your calendar, it is September the 25th through the 28th in the Seattle, Washington area. So for the months of June, July, and August, we will be going back into our archives and pulling in some of the best podcasts from our Preterist Radio Days, which have not yet been posted on Buzzsprout. There are several really good studies back there which must not get lost in the shuffle, and the summer is a perfect time to do something like that. So we'll be posting one of those podcasts each Sunday throughout the summer. It'll be a good variety of doctrinal and topical and textual studies. I'm sure you will find some really good stuff there, and I'm looking forward to getting that made available to you here on the Buzzsprout webpage for you. Since those lessons have already been developed and presented on other networks, they will not require as much preparation and production time as our regular podcast, and that will give me a lot more time over the summer to work on my master's thesis, which I'm hoping to get finished before September so that we can resume our study of Christian history. So please pray for me as I work on my master's thesis over the summer months. I would very much appreciate that. That's going to wrap it up for this session. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio-video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future. 